Hi, I'm Jack Lessonberry, and welcome to the first episode of my podcast. I've been writing and doing journalism since the last days of hot metal type. I've pretty much done everything from being a roving foreign correspondent to a television host, a radio news analyst, and a city magazine editor. I've interviewed Gerald Ford about Watergate, Jack Kevorkian about suicide, and Kwame Kilpatrick about that famous party of his. Most of all, what I like doing is telling stories, sharing interesting things I've learned, and getting people to tell stories that reveal sides of themselves that most people really don't know. I also think I have a pretty good grasp of how Michigan works and who the people who run it are. For those of you who are fans of my daily essays during my many years with Michigan Radio, we'll have those too. So make sure to listen as often as you possibly can. And remember, there's no charge for listening twice. And also, please follow my writing on my blog, Lessonberry Inc. That's I-N-K like inkpen.com. One of the most fascinating and significant stories I ever covered was the battle Dr. Jack Kevorkian waged to give people the right to end their lives and suffering when they became unbearable. Very early on, I realized that Kevorkian's lawyer, Jeffrey Figer, was not only legally brilliant, but a fascinating multidimensional person in his own right. I did stories for the New York Times and later Vanity Fair and Esquire about the lawyer who kept Dr. Death free. Kevorkian's now long gone, but if you live in Michigan, you'll undoubtedly still see Jeffrey Figer's commercials. But there's a lot more to the man than the pit bull lawyer. He joins us today. Jeffrey, welcome to my podcast, and thanks for making time for us today. Well, thanks, Jack. It's a honor for you to have me on. Uh, is this your inaugural week or, or bi-weekly or whatever? I don't know how long you've been doing this. Well, I'm trying not to do it weekly. I want to be as strong as possible, but uh, uh, we're, we're, we're hoping for as often as possible. And I wonder, I, I wonder, really, Jeffrey, what makes you tick? I mean, you don't do this just for the money. What really is the thrill? What really defines you? I don't know what defines me, but I can tell you that I what I tell uh, uh, young law students when I speak to them is that uh, what I do for a living doesn't seem like work for me. And if they can do something for a living that doesn't seem like work, they've got it made. Um, I really just like what I do. It doesn't seem like work. And uh, so every day when I go into the office, I feel like I'm going to my home and uh, handling cases. Is fun, and I I never lose the it, it never lose the funness of it. I know that's not a word, but uh, and so I guess I'm I'm just like I always was, even when I was. Doesn't everybody want to have fun? You think so? And I think there's nothing more important in life than loving what you do. Yeah, yeah, and just having fun. Kids want to have fun. It's so I'm I'm an adult that still wants to have fun. Most adults do. Most adults, I think, hate what they do. They really um, find it uh, excruciating. They they look at work as an unnecessary uh, interference or an unfortunate interference in their lifestyle, and they can't wait to get out. And that's why they, quote-unquote, retire. I guess I'm reaching the age now. People keep saying to me, well, are you going to retire? And I, it sounds so strange to me because I couldn't imagine. Retire to what? To right. do what? I can't even imagine it. And I mean, I'm at the age where nobody ever mentioned that to me before. Maybe it's because my hair is kind of whitish, but uh, um, I'm not retiring because that would mean I'm, I'm, I'm retire for me would be retiring from life. Somehow I don't see you on the couch while watching the game of the week uh, endlessly. I can't do it. I can't do it. Uh, 
first of all, I can't listen to the cliches of these. The year after year after year, I have heard every cliche that can ever be used for any broadcast ball game. I don't know how anybody can listen to it anymore. <laughs> I think I'm in favor of no sound anymore, man. That might make there people who turn the sound down. You know, you've dealt with thousands of defendants, I'm sure, over the years, both in in your malpractice pra- uh, practice, in you know, more politically and society-oriented cases. Um, what do you think overall about our legal system? Does it work? It's only as good as the uh, uh, the theory of it does. Um, the but it's only as good as the people that you have populating it, and it is as susceptible to the um, untoward forces um, that exist in our society as as uh, the other branches of government. The legal system is simply the third branch of government. Um, and you've seen what's happened with the executive. You've seen what's happened with the legislature, uh, legislatures and the legislative process. And the legal system is as susceptible. For instance, really what's going on with Trump, and, and perhaps the only reason for his continued uh, existence, in other words, why the, the Senate hasn't turned against him, the Republican Senate, is his uh, uh, agreement to to uh, put in uh, virtually any uh, federalist judge, arch conservative right wing. They're not really conservatives; they're very radical, but arch right wing judges. Uh, and his willingness to do that is almost the the reason that the the sole reason that he uh, continues uh, to uh, maintain some support in the republic with the Republican majority in the Senate. What is the fact judges will have an impact on the uh, legal system and it won't be good. What is the fact that somebody like that could become president? What does that say about our society and our system? It's terrible, not, not the system. It says something terrible, terrible about us that we were, well, in the Ukraine, they just elected a comedian. That's right. 71% of the vote. I don't know anything about him. Maybe he's a great guy, but I think they did that in Italy, too, and he got out of office really, really quickly. But our willingness to have elected a guy who's was an utter, and if anyone cared to look, was obviously a con man who had, had terrible, terrible business acumen, who was a self-promoter par excellence, and whose really only success um, was the uh, Apprentice TV show, which permitted him or put him in, in, in front of uh, millions and millions of people for 14 seasons, and that people somehow believed that he was that character. <laughs> he was a thousand times worse than the character he was playing on The Apprentice. They call it a reality show, but it's not. It's scripted. Do you think? Do you that think that, that does not bode well for America? It does not bode well. You know, I don't particularly like George Will. I mean, I like him, but I don't agree with a lot of the things he says. I like what he says about Trump now, but he really, I mean, viscerally hates Trump. And they said, "Well, would you like to get rid of?" Him? He says, "No, no. America's got to get punished for a little while." Uh, you know, so they realize they'll never do this to themselves again. And I like that. He said that, and you know, for, for a, 
a very strong Republican conservative to be right. saying that is, is pretty extraordinary. Now, you do you understand politics. You ran for governor in 1998. Do you think the Democrats can defeat Trump? Yeah. I don't think there's any question that, that a, a competent Democrat can and will defeat Trump. All you've got to look at is how he was elected uh, in this past election, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, by uh, something less than uh, 90,000 votes, 8,000 votes in Michigan. Um, that's not going to happen again. He's going to lose Michigan. I, I can't conceive of him winning Pennsylvania or Wisconsin. So how does he win now? What states is he, go, is he likely to win under the Electoral College system? That's, he didn't, you know, he won by, by sheer almost accident. Right. Certainly he didn't win the popular vote. And I don't see a circumstance, and, and it was truly a, a royal flush, if you want to liken it to some, it, 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 to happen again, he would have had to build up some type of, 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 of ability to, to duplicate that. He, he, he doesn't go after any of the, and those were infinitesimally small amounts by which he won by. Right. What's he going to do now? He's going to lose Michigan as the way it stands. He's going to lose Pennsylvania, the suburbs of Pennsylvania. He's going to lose Wisconsin. They've all gone in uh, in these off-season heavily Democrat. What's going to turn him for, in favor of Trump? I would like to know his strategy for winning. Well, I think a strategy for winning is based on demonizing the Democrats, and of course, it won't be a straight vote on whether you want Trump or not. It'll be Trump against some Democrat. Do you see? Yeah, and the Republicans always do that. I don't. Americans, when are they going to wake up? They demonize now immigrants and migrants. And remember, there was the war on drugs, and you demonized drugs, and then the terrorists. You declared war on a on a noun. Um, and they've always had the boogeyman, the Republicans, because they really were never the majority of the party. Right. They were the party that instigated hate. I can't really, you know, the, the Southern Democrats were guilty too, but that's besides the point. Um, and they instigate hate. And uh, how or why people would vote, you know, in, in today's age, why do the Democrats simply need to remind uh, America, the Republicans have always been against Social Security. They were always against Medicare. That's why they're against your health insurance now. And it's never going to get any better. I don't even understand how an American can look themselves in the face and say, I'd rather have an insurance bureaucrat run my health insurance. Why is this country the way it is? I mean, you you are a philosopher. Yeah, I'll tell you why. And when I was born in 1950, there were 150 million Americans. There are now in excess of 350 million Americans. And I don't want to be disingenuous, but I don't. I, I think that a certain amount of inher- intelligence is inherited, and I think the mean uh, intelligence of this country has gone down exponentially by virtue of the population explosion. Uh, you've got an additional 250 million people here, and I don't think there are 250 million real smart people. Why is that? I mean, why are we breeding dumber people if that, in fact, is the case? Well, dumb people have more kids than smart people. <laughs> well, there's not a it's not a terrible thing to say. I mean, I just think uh, if, if if you look at the statistics, 
you know, I don't see a lot of real bright college educated. I don't think, first of all, you don't have to be bright to go to college. There's a lot of stupid people in college. Intrinsically bright people might, for instance, my grandparents, I don't think, went to college. I think they were probably bright and their children exceeded, far exceeded what my grandparents have exceeded, and, and and my parents were very bright. I've exceeded a little, maybe not as much as my parents. They were probably smarter than me. But I, I just think that uh, um, probably smart people aren't having as many children as, <laughs> as the people who are uh, uh, choosing to vote for Trump. But Trump, Trump's obviously the result of pure, unadulterated, and they don't say it in the press, racism. His ability to maintain a level of 40 to 45 percent of the electorate, no matter what he does, in the face of that bar report, which demonstrates, if somebody reads that, especially the second half of that 400-page report, we have a criminal. We have a criminal in office, and this is just a criminal with regard to the, uh, the interference of Russia and obstruction of justice. Nobody's talking about his real criminal activities, which is his financial criminal activities. Right. He's run a, 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 a house of cards financial scam for years. He went bankrupt four times. He and, and, and he's a scam artist. And when they start looking into, and that's what he really, really, that's why he's gone crazy in terms of the uh, uh, house going after his finances and getting into his not only his tax returns, but his auditing companies. Um, because, you know, I mean, everybody forgets, by the way, Cohen is going to jail for election fraud. And in the indictment, it says that uh, that uh, Trump was part of the election fraud. Right. And, and everybody forgets about that. It, uh, do you think and I was tried for it, by the way. I was charged for a lot less than Trump was engaged in. That's right. You were acquitted by a federal jury. Yeah. And, by the way, obstruction of justice. I was charged with obstruction of justice for telling an FBI agent that my partner should answer his, my dead partner should answer his question. Now, if that can get you charged in a grand jury and they allow that to go to trial... Anybody who says that the facts weren't there for Trump's obstruction of justice is just knows nothing about the law. Oh, and hasn't read the Mueller report. Um, you know, you spe- right. speaking of, of kids, I think that everybody knows you as the world's toughest pit bull lawyer, but you're also one of the most devoted fathers I've seen. You've got three young well, kids. You. Are you worried about your oldest son's about to go to college? Are you worried about the America they're going to grow up in? Children, uh, my male children are uh, are part African American. I'm worried about them driving home at night, mm. and getting pulled over. Uh, I'm worried about that. Uh, um, well, that's that's something. Do you think any of them will follow you into the law? <laughs> I never wanted to be a lawyer. I don't. You know, I don't think you could tell you if you tell your children to be what you are. I think you're making a sorry mistake. Well, they might, but. Uh, It'll, they'll have to find their own direction through indirection. Well, find ne- direction through indirection out. If you never wanted to be a lawyer, how would you end up becoming probably the most prominent lawyer in Michigan? Girls. Girls? Yeah, what? girls. That- I ran out of college. De- I always liked smart women, and I ran out of college degrees. I 
and had a bachelor's and master's degree from Michigan, and then I had to keep going to college because I just I didn't really want to go out and be an actor or something like that. So I continued to go to college because I like girls. That's why. I think I think you told me once that when you started law school, it was kind of kicking and screaming, and then you said it was like trying a food you never knew you liked. Yeah, yeah, or a sport that you're good at, or an instrument that you never knew you had a proclivity for. I'd always, you know, been brought up in a home that spoke the law. My uncle was the dean of a law school. My dad was a lawyer. So it's a foreign language to most people, except for me, it wasn't. It was I was raised, if, if you think about it, in a bilingual home, the bilingual part being the law. And I understood it. I understood it intuitively. I didn't understand that I knew it. And so it was, and then I saw a different way to handle it too, because I understood it in a way different than I didn't have to learn it. I understood it kind of in my bones. Then I started, when I was in law school, I started thinking about different ways to approach an an issue that would be more fun or would be more creative or, or, or more attractive to me. And, uh, um, so that's, was the development. You know, the one place you've always been supremely popular in Detroit, when you ran for governor, Detroiters voted for you overwhelmingly. What do you think about Detroit? Is Detroit really going to make a comeback? Is Duggan have the city on the right track? On the right track? No, not Duggan, Gilbert. We need 50 more Dan Gilberts. You cannot exist without 50 more of him. And we're, we've done wonderfully. Nobody should criticize him for anything he's done, although, you know, he's bought up the city of Detroit and he's going to develop only a very, very small uh, um, small part of it and he's going to try to flip the rest. But I don't see anybody else coming in to do what he's doing, and I'm hoping that they do. Um, because, you know, if, you know, I was a little concerned several weeks ago. There was quite a number of stories about the fact that uh, Wall Street was rating that Quicken Loans as junk bonds because they don't get, they don't understand the nature of his business. I know he was quite upset about that, but quite frankly, I don't either. I don't see that as a as an enduring business model. And and for the entire city of Detroit to be dependent upon the, the relative success of Quicken Loans is, to me, would be rather scary. Uh, and I'm not being critical of him. I think he's right. done an amazing, an amazing job. And even if he was rock solid, you know, they used to say, "As goes the, as goes GM, so goes uh, the country." And you see what happened to GM. So that means, I think, relatively, that means nothing. But we can't exist on one thing. We can't. We've been a one horse town with three auto companies, and look where that got us. We certainly can't be a one horse town with one quick and loan got to be more. Well, how does Detroit get beyond having one? You, first of all, we thought Illich should be a savior for a while, thought Caramanos. How do we get beyond Dan Gilbert? Water. Someone to recognize that, you know, there's gold in them dar hills. Right. And, you know, you keep hearing about Houston and Texas, and they have these boom and bust periods for the oil. We have the water. And if anybody had a brain in their head, that's where the future is. You've got, we've got a Democratic governor. In fact, we've got Democrat office holders all across the spectrum. I think the I think per, most dynamic person in government right now in Michigan is the, uh, is the 
uh, attorney general. She's far exceeded any of my expectations. This state has been so corrupt illegally. Engler and his cohorts put in place a Supreme Court with judges that he controlled and a court of appeals. And they ran this state like a little dictatorship. They even, with the, uh, this last guy, tried to do that at MSU when they put Engler back in and then they put uh, uh, Judge Young in, 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 in place, sort of to fix that scandal because everything was fixed in Michigan. That's why you don't see any priest prosecution, because they had one of their judges, you know, uh, align with the Catholic Church and kill all the, all the, uh, those cases. Abusive priests. And Engler and and Young were going to kill all the cases uh, against uh, that doctor who who abused, yeah, yeah, who abused all the women. This, this, this was, is one of the most corrupt states that anyone can possibly imagine. And getting back to the Attorney General, she's going after them. Right. She's going after them. I'm not against the Catholic Church. My my children, for Christ's sake, go to Catholic Church. <laughs> they go to Catholic schools. For me to say right. that. Right. Yeah, and I like Catholics. I mean, you know, my mom was a Catholic. My wife's a Catholic. But for, you know, uh, the Catholic Church is a political organization, and they tried to fix everything through Engler and their judges. And that's nonsense, and she's going after them, and I applaud her for that. Does any part of you miss going, being in elective politics? Are you ever tempted to try to get in there yourself again? Yeah, yeah, but I don't want to... Today, uh, yeah, if it was, even 20 years ago when I, was, when I ran, it was less personal than it is today. Now, it, they literally, what they want to do is try to personally destroy you. I'm not, I'm right. not interested with young children and being personally destroyed. That, I'm that, just not interested. That is, that is a problem. But if Gretchen Whitmer were to call you after hearing this and ask for how, what, some advice on how she could possibly fix Michigan, given that she's got a Republican legislature to contend with, what would you tell her? Well, I'd tell her the same thing. At, who, uh, the, the one who I did select when I ran for governor, I selected as my attorney general candidate. Uh, um, I'm getting old now, so what was her name? I selected the, attorney uh, the former governor. Um, Jennifer, Jennifer Granholm. Granholm. I selected That's her, right. and she didn't listen to me. She was a, she was a Duggan and, and McNamara protege. I would have told her to use the bully pulpit and get out there and start exposing what has gone on here because the Michigan legislature, and especially the Michigan Senate, has been, you know, an intractable, ridiculously bought-off organization. And look at the result. I mean, we have, we've taken Michigan, which was at one point the most progressive and, 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 and really a state that people could look at, into the backwoods of Mississippi, our school systems have fallen apart. Our roads are crumbling. Our water is polluted. Our schools are failing. Yeah, and and for what? What is? Oh, you tell me what those Republicans did. They've controlled our state essentially for the last thirty years. When the Jeffrey Figer biography or autobiography comes to be written, what would you like the subhead to say? What would you like, how would you define yourself and the meaning of your career in a few words? I have a 
thought about that. On the whole, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. <laughs> they were talking about my tombstone. I haven't thought about not, the, not, sub, not, do you have the, gold? the substacks of it, but uh, um, at some point, somebody will say uh, that he was a really kind of good lawyer. Because everybody thinks that um, somehow there, there's some trick into or, or what I do, or there's some uh, there's something you know that they can't figure out why I'm successful, and maybe it has to do with that I'm just kind of good at what I do. With the exception of yourself, who are the best lawyers you ever saw? Jerry Smith, the most power. Jerry Spence had power, has power, but he's, he's still alive. He's 90, but he had a power that is, is I, I, I'm unable to, to, to put into words. You have to be in his presence. I've seen that power in other people. I've seen that power just standing there. I was behind in, in seventh grade, Martin Luther King. I've seen that power. I actually observed Elvis Presley in a car at a turnpike, a pay turnpike. I've seen sort of that aura. And I don't believe in any of that nonsense either. Um, but uh, he had a power, and very, very few. I've never seen it again. Finally, do you, I know you live in the now, but do you have any goals, anything you want to accomplish yet that you haven't yet accomplished? Yeah, I would like to be president of the United States under the right circumstances. Other than that, I can't really say a I've done what I want to do, although I'm not going to rest my laurels on the law. I actually opened a hotel. I never thought I'd do that. I built and now I operate a hotel. That's it on the on the uh, island of Anguilla. That's right. I, I'm a father, which is probably my, my proudest accomplishment because they seem to be pretty good kids. Uh, although they're still young. You had 11, 15, and 17. Um I, I I wasn't successful in politics, and I usually don't let. Uh, I, I I never don't accomplish what I what I set out to accomplish. So, but then again, I I don't feel that old. Other than my hip is bothering me a little with arthritis, so I think I'm kind of a young 68. How, in retrospect, how important were the Kevorkian cases in terms of this broader sweep of society? Oh. Every person within earshot of your voice right now should understand that the way hospice operates today, which is if you need it, you get unlimited narcotics as much as you want, and you can end your life or your family can end your life simply by going into, quote-unquote, hospice. That is all because of Jack Kevorkian, all. 100%. 100%. It didn't used to be like that. Now it is. And he is, that is uh, his legacy. And, and his legacy, as I've always said, long after all the people who attacked him and criticized him and imprisoned him are dead, he'll be long remembered in far uh, more respect than those who persecuted him. Yeah, what was defending him like? Was that uh, you, hard? I think... <laughs> defending him was hard because Jack was not the easiest client to deal with. Jack, I, I was against the legislature, the police, the courts, the governor, and I could handle that. But Jack was very difficult too. He didn't like to be uh, controlled. The only way I could effectively represent him was to to stand in front of him and, and take control of the situation, and that was antithetical to Jack. 
and he would do everything he possibly could to undermine it. I think it was kind of a game for him, but it became exhausting after 10 years, almost 10 years that we were together, um, because he was hell-bent in some way, shape, or form, not only on undermining, but failing, and I was never going to fail, so... It was going to be him or me, and at some point I had to step aside. I stepped aside when I ran for governor, and then I just, you know, at that point he decided he was going to take the ship down himself. Well, he, su- he succeeded at that. Finally, is there something you'd like people to know about Jeffrey Figer that they don't know? Um, well, my brother was the lead singer of the Knack. He sang My Sharona, and um, I like to... Uh, work out a lot, and I'm a very nice guy. And you like cats. How many cats do you have? I like cats. How many cats do you have? Five cats. Five cats. Five cats. They're getting old. Do they all have names? (laughs) Of course they have names. We don't give them numbers. I think you should give your children numbers. They cause you less problems. Just tell them they were born to work for you. Uh, We have Kobe, and we have Haiku, and we have Orca, and we have uh, um, a few others. They... uh, uh, Moto and uh, one other one, Mika. Well, you passed the test. You Two got girls, all, three boys. You got all your kids and all your cats' names correctly. Jeffrey Figer, thanks for making time for us today. It's always fascinating. Thank you. I hope it was interesting for you and your listeners. Always. We'll talk to you again soon. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks. Take care. Jeffrey Figer. Love him or hate him, there's one thing people agree on about him. If they were ever really, really in trouble, they'd go to him. This is a man who defended a physician who openly admitted he helped people kill themselves when that was against the law, and he got them off every time. He beat the U.S. government when they went after him. So, if you have a legal problem, you think there's no one else who can help you, 248-355-5555. That's 248-355-5555. Call Figer Law. Most of us know that corporations have the same rights as people for some legal purposes, but what about the rights of nature? A group of mainly young, idealistic people in Toledo decided that poor, long-suffering Lake Erie should have the right not to be polluted beyond measure and collected signatures to get a Lake Erie Bill of Rights on the ballot. Both major parties largely opposed them and fought to keep that off the ballot. They're outspent 40 to 1 by mainly out-of-state interest, with funds coordinated by Vice President Dick Cheney's daughter, and despite all that, the kids and the lake won by a landslide. Joining me in the studio is Marky Miller, the communications director and driving force behind that campaign. Marky, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, you're a local environmental activist, and how long did it take you guys to uh, figure out what you wanted to do and put together this Bill of Rights and get it on the ballot. We knew what we wanted to do right away. It probably took a little less than a year to get everything drafted, get people on board, and then it took about two years to actually collect signatures. Wow. And so once you collected signatures, I understand that the city and the county fought to keep it off the ballot anyway. Yeah, we had a lot of obstacles once we turned those in, and we should have been on the November 2018 ballot. Uh, We were kept off first by the Board of Elections and had several fights in the Ohio Supreme Court, lots of protests in our local city council office, and eventually won the right to a special election this February. Now, you were worried about that because you thought you'd do better with a larger turnout of a general election. 
I think you you always have more people engaged and paying attention right. to a general election. In February, the weather is is so hard to predict, so that definitely deters people from coming out, I think. Exactly. And so you ended up having a special election, tiny, tiny turnout. Mm -hmm. You had, uh, was it BP? What we used to know as British Petroleum spent more than $300,000 and they gave it to Dick Cheney's daughter to run the campaign against you. Yes, under the name Toledo Jobs and Growth Coalition. But I think we can stop calling it a coalition since it was just one donor. Kind of like me calling myself the young, thin people of America. (laughs) That's right. So, So anyway, so how much money did you folks managed to scrape together. We spent just under $6,000 so on our campaign. So they had $313,000, and you had $6,000. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you weren't doing a lot of big-budget TV commercials. No, no. We did uh, about 10,000 mailers, just right. one front and back colored copy. And then we went door-to-door and hung up door signs, talked to many as many people as we could. It was a very, very grassroots campaign. Uh, we spent our money on yard signs, which we had to go out and place in the snow and take orders for. Uh, it, was, it was a grind, and we spent every dollar that we could. Uh, we we also did some robocalls to try and just get our message out there. Got a lot of calls back from people asking where do they vote, wanting more information. Right. So we tried to engage people as best we could, uh, but we're, we are also all volunteers. So. You didn't get paid for this, obviously. No. And, if, and you were running, if I remember correctly, you were running a theater at the time mm-hmm. and moving, which is one of the most difficult yeah. things. Yeah, I moved. I moved the same week as the election. <laughs> so what happened? What happened when people actually voted? It was an overwhelming majority of people voting yes for this. More than sixty-one um, percent. Yeah, the the first election results came in early. Those were all the the early voting and the absentee ballots, and we had seventy-seven percent of those. Were you, were you amazed by that? Yes, I, wow. I think we knew at that point that we had a huge lead. And we were getting calls from media saying, we think you got it, so we're just going to do your interview now. And, right. you know, so it it was still hard to believe. You know, you never know numbers come in all night sure. and things could happen. But I think that 77% just it shook us and we were just excited from, to from that point. To put it in technical, political uh, science terms, you really kicked butt. We did. And uh, so what is the Bill of Rights? What does it do? What does it do? Now, I mean, obviously— how does the lake act on its Bill of Rights, or can people act on its behalf? Yeah, so the the goal is, as you said earlier, to start to strip away those rights of corporations that entitle them to pollute, to use nature as property. And what we do is recognize that Lake Erie has rights, the right to flourish, exist, evolve naturally, and that we've been violating those rights with our current environmental policies. Now, some of us remember, of course, that five years ago this summer— the drinking water, and no, nobody could drink or even bathe with the water in Toledo, all the way up right. to Monroe, Michigan, because of the these huge algae blooms with with poisonous bacteria toxin produced by the poisonous toxins produced by the cyanobacteria in mm-hmm. them. Um, is that was that caused directly by things people did? Yeah, I think that was definitely uh, the the culprit was was human activity, right? It, it was uh, industrial farming. It was a lot of the nutrient runoff. Uh, so that that played a huge role, and it's so played basically a huge this role. Is when you, uh, in layman's terms, it was it's fertilizer and manure pouring into the water, right? And there's phosphorus in that, and that's what the algae eat, right? 
Right. And our area is so unique with the drainage tiles and that system that we have in the, the rural parts surrounding that watershed and within that watershed that it's almost impossible to use our current best management practices to reduce uh, the dissolved phosphorus that gets in right. deep into the soil layers and is drained out through the tiles and dra- straight into the waterways. A few years ago, I presided over a conference uh, called uh, Farmers and People Together or something where they're trying to get farmers to voluntarily reduce the amount of phosphorus they're putting in the water, which mm-hmm. I don't think worked. Um, <laughs> so so basically, now, could you, could you, Toledoans for Safe Water, which is your group, mm-hmm. if you have a farmer in the Toledo jurisdiction who's putting, you know, fertilizer on frozen ground and it's getting in the Lake Erie, could you sue on behalf of uh, Lake Erie? Absolutely. And the the activity that's causing the harm, wherever the source of that is, does not have to be in the jurisdiction of Toledo. It's more about where the harm happens. Uh-huh. So, so, you know, we are giving rights to all of Lake Erie, but all, we are a little more limited to the Western Basin, of course. But the people who are at the source of that harm may not be in the limits of Toledo. So if they're doing something, let's say, up in Michigan— and it's coming down, it's affecting Lake Erie, because mm-hmm. it's going to affect all of Lake Erie, you can still sue them. You don't, you're not just limited to the city of Toledo. Right. And, and a lot of that comes down to the boundaries of the watershed right. and how that can drain down. Because what happens, just like after the water crisis, the people of Toledo, my community, we had to shoulder the cost right. of repairing that problem, of treating that problem. Millions and millions of dollars. Millions of dollars, millions of dollars. Higher water rates. Um, And then just this overall risk of, well, if you're treating our tap water and maybe we're not exposed to those high levels, but we are exposed to high levels of whatever you're treating it with. So there's a lot of costs associated that fell on our shoulders. And for the last five years, I have not seen anything come out of any any level of government that has sought to properly address the issue. Is it, is, it quite, is it possible that this summer you could have a re- repeat of that? I mean, there's still these huge algae blooms that are forming. Sure. Could you have another case where this toxin gets in the water again? Sure, it sure. Could, could it happen in, in Detroit? Absolutely. It could happen anywhere. And we've seen all over the globe there's been an uptick in uh, harmful algal, blo- algal blooms. And, you know, in Florida last summer had the red tide and, right. you know, it's, it's becoming a big problem. And what I saw after... Our issue in 2014 was that we began to normalize it, to say, let's get prepared. Let's watch uh, watch and monitor the water, and we'll, we'll notify you early. Right. Yeah, and, and to say, well, it's okay that we stock up on bottled water all summer and paper plates and frozen food just in case. Right. You know, but that's not an answer that I want to accept. So now, are you hoping that other communities follow your lead? Absolutely. I think that's going to be key, um, that we need— other shoreline communities of Lake right. Erie, as well as other other communities throughout the U.S. to start doing this. Now, your opponents, the people who are uh, against you, did they just uh, accept it as a good sport, say, well, you won fair and square, and uh, you know <laughs> we're not going to bother to challenge it? I don't think that's what happened, is it? I wish I could say that. Uh, no, absolutely not. We had less than 24 hours. We had a lawsuit filed uh, after the election against our, our initiative. By some farming group? It was. It's filed by a a farmer in Wood County, um, but Wood County is south of Toledo. Yes, okay. yes, and and um, but we 
we believe it to be backed by the Ohio Farm Bureau and and the big ag industry. Right. Um, they were very actively and, and vocally against us during our campaign. And now the state of Ohio has also attempted to intercede. Yes, the state because they the lawsuit was filed against the city of Toledo. So uh, we're trying to intervene. Goliath doesn't stay dead. You <laughs> knock him out and he keeps going back. Keeps going back. Well, I think it's there's there's just more than one, and um, so we're definitely trying to intervene not only as Toledoans for Safe Water as a group, but also intervene as Lake Erie. Right, so because you have the right to do that now. Absolutely. We'd like to be able to give Lake Erie a voice in this case. Now, when I first met you, you know, um, uh, you were a local activist. You were not working full-time. You are still working on a master's degree. You're going to give a speech uh, <laughs> later this month. You were asked to speak before the United Nations. Yes. Did that, did that sort of, to use a 60s term, blow your mind? <laughs> it still is. I, I still can't believe that it's it's a reality. And this is on Earth Day. You're going to speak on Earth Day. Yep, yep. So I'm leaving this weekend, and on Monday I get to address the United Nations for their Harmony with Nature um, interactive dialogue. Are you going to just ask them to promote world peace or to stop all the wars <laughs> or something, just if you have a little extra time? Or Yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll or, see how many demands I can so squeeze what, in there. I, I imagine you're still working on this, but what do you plan on saying at the United Nations? I think driving home for me, the, the important point would be the power of grassroots right. and the importance of prioritizing the rights of nature over the rights of corporations. Because when it comes down to it, the rights of Lake Erie become the rights of my community. You know, I was thinking about this driving here. You're 29 years old. You're the same age as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, mm-hmm. the dynamic new congresswoman, Katie Fahey, who put together a grassroots group like yourself last year to get gerrymandering ended in Michigan. 29-year-old women seem to be taking over the world. Right. And, and to making things happen, which I think is very encouraging. By the way, Lake Erie is the most endangered of all the lakes, right? Because it's mm-hmm. warmer, it's fairly shallow. Right. And so it's the lake, if, if the Asian carp are going to get in anywhere, they're going to get there. So um, what, what made you decide to donate, to sort of devote so much of your professional life to Lake Erie? I was a, I was a grad student of environmental science, and I was very frustrated Right. I was being told, here's the world's problems. Um, good luck. You know, there, there was not a lot of discussion about here's what you can do about it. And it started to break me a little bit where I, I felt like I was failing the environmental movement. Mm. And in between that time, I was transitioning grad programs. And when I went home is when we had the water crisis. And it was at a point when I was ready to give up and pick a new career. Right. I just thought, I don't have a place here. You were selling cars for a while. <laughs> for a while. Yes. <laughs> and um, I think that moment when it happened at home and I just got so frustrated to the point where I thought, I'm just going to get involved again. And I was, again, feeling frustrated that I didn't have a place, I didn't have a role to play in that fight. It was a lot of listening, a lot of pleading and begging. And when I heard about, hey, this group is trying to do a Lake Erie Bill of Rights, I knew almost nothing about it. But it just, it spoke to me in a way that I thought, I'm going to go check this out. And learning about it and the idea of community rights, of rights of nature, 
changed my entire perspective. It was everything I was missing from my environmental education. So I thought, you know, I I always would joke about this burden of knowledge that you'd have with environmental science that you know too much and you feel guilty all the time with everything that you do. And finally, I had this burden of knowledge of something that I knew about that it was a solution. So how could I not get involved with well, it? And, and you did it. Now, you folks have a website. People want to read more about it. We do. It is lakeerieaction.org. And you can find us on Facebook as Toledoans for Safe Water. Final question, or almost final question. <laughs> if someone is listening to us who's in uh, Gross Point or St. Clair Shores or some other Michigan shoreline community, mm-hmm. what do you recommend they do? Uh, I think they should, if, if they're interested, they should find others in their community that would be uh, interested in pursuing this idea. They are more than welcome to contact our group. Um, we are a little tied up with the lawsuit and things going on. You know, we, right. we're we not quite done with our work yet. But I would also recommend that they contact the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, which is a nonprofit public interest law firm that assisted us with drafting this law and also doing all the legal work for us. And you have a current position with environmental. I do. I, after the election, um, you know, I, I quit my job because the work with this was so intense that it was too important for me to sacrifice. So I left my job. I volunteered full-time for the campaign. And uh, I knew that I wanted to find an environmental career that didn't mean compromising what I stood for. That seemed to be the norm that you had to compromise some things if you wanted to work for a regulatory agency or some form of environmental company. So uh, I just kept applying with them. And I don't do any organizing, but I help with uh, their their fundraising. The name of the group you're with? uh, The Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund. CELDEF, for sure. CELDEF, yep. But, uh, well, Mark and Miller, congratulations. I think your story is inspiring. Any final things that you wanted to say about Lake Erie or about uh, environmental activism? I think it's important that we look at this as civil disobedience, as saying that what we do, our actions need to be the things that inform the laws that we abide by, rather than just looking at our system of laws and saying, well, that's not a route that we can go. Mm-hmm. Marky Miller, Toledoans for Safe Water, thank you very much for making time for us today. Thank you. I'm Jack Lessenberry. I'll be back in a moment. Well, that's about it for this podcast, except for my signature essay, which is how we conclude most of our time together here on the Zing Media Network. Also, please check out my blog, LessonberryInc.com. That's ink as an ink pen, all one word. And click the button and subscribe. And listen to our next episode soon. Tell your friends and feel free to send me a message on Facebook or via email. This is your cheerful old curmudgeon, Jack Lessonberry. I'll see you again soon. <laughs>